Let's open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. It's good to have David Terry here with us, George and Ray's son. Uh, his son has just graduated from Emory Seminary in Georgia, which is one of the better seminaries in the United States, and is uh, in a chaplaincy program. Where's that located? Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, really on the cutting edge of what they're doing in chaplaincy service today. Chaplaincies, chaplaincies are not like they used to be. If you're a chaplain and you were been a chaplain for, let's say, 20 or 30 years, and a new guy is coming along now, graduating from seminary, it's like night and day between what you learned and what they're learning. They're learning about the mind-body, they're learning about the, the subconscious mind, they're learning about the power of the mind to, to heal the body, and the power of prayer in a way that uh, chaplains have never uh, studied before. They're learning about neuroscience, neuroscience, brain imaging, uh, science and religion for some reason, are finding each other, and they're meeting in the chaplaincy, and the chaplains are the ones who are taking this information and ministering to people in hospitals, and so this is an exciting field. Okay, well let's look at Matthew 16. Now today we are coming to a very well-known passage, we've all read it before, probably hundred times, but in my mind it's one of the... Uh, I wouldn't call it least understood passages, but it's misinterpreted in many ways. And uh, for years, I think I misinterpreted it. So I'm going to give a little different spin as we go through it. And uh, we're going to start at verse 13. So here's what it says. Then Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now we see a couple things in this passage. First of all, we see a location, which is Caesarea Philippi. Now this is located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. There are there's a town called Caesarea. That's on the Mediterranean Sea. That's not this city. Okay? This is a city that's in the middle of the land called Caesarea Philippi, named after Augustus Caesar. That's where the Caesarea part comes from. And from Philip, who was Herod the Great's son. And this is, a, he was a tetrarch. After Herod the Great died, his four sons inherited his kingdom, and this son inherited one-fourth of it. And this city was named after him. So this is Caesarea Philippi. And it's at the mouth of the Jordan River, way up north. It sort of feeds the Jordan River. That's where its source is. Now we see a second thing in this passage that Jesus asked a question. And he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the answer to this question will prepare him for his journey to Jerusalem. You're going to discover in verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. That's the turning point of the book. Verse 21 is the turning point in the book. That's the uh, pivot, where the book pivots. 
Up until this time, Jesus has been ministering in the north, in Galilee. But in verse 21, he's going to move south, and he's going to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And he needs to know what he, can, what he should expect to find when he gets there. What, what do the people think of him? That will determine how he ministers when he gets to Jerusalem and on the way to Jerusalem. So he's asking what is the public or the crowd's opinion of him. Now notice how he describes himself. He describes himself as the Son of Man. See that? That is a designation that is found in Daniel chapter 7. I want you to turn there uh, just for a second because I think this will set up the rest of the passage for us. Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is how he refers to himself. He wants to know, well, what do other people think about me? I think that I'm the Son of Man. What do they think about me? So the Son of Man you'll discover in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. Daniel has a vision. And you know he has a series of visions in his tells about in this book. In verse 13 he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. So there's that title. That's where Jesus gets the title. Now look what he sees in the vision. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Look where he goes. He goes to the Ancient of Days. That's to God. Notice he's going up to God. He's going to God. He's not coming to earth. He's coming to God. you see that? Coming to the Ancient of Days. And they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that the peoples of the nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. So when Jesus says... Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? He sees himself as the one who's going to inherit this kingdom. Who's going to go to God. And he will go to God, won't he? He'll die, he'll be resurrected, and then what happens? He ascends to God, and guess what he's given? He's given a kingdom. He sits at God's right hand, and he is given authority over all of heaven and earth. But he'll reign from heaven. Initially. One day he'll come back. And he'll reign ultimately on earth. But this is how he describes himself. This is how Jesus sees himself. So when you go back to Matthew 16, he says, okay, here's how I understand myself, but how do the crowds understand me? How do they view me? And we get the answer in verse 14. Okay, so Matthew 16, 14. So the disciples said, well, some say uh, John the Baptist. That's who they think you are. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah have one thing in common. They're all, what? Prophets. So the people's opinion of Jesus is positive. It's not negative. They put him in the classification as a spokesman for God. That's positive. He's very popular among the people. Now, John the Baptist, you're familiar with him. He's dead now in the book of Matthew. And uh, who thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist? Remember who that was? 
Herod Antipas, remember that? He's the one that cut John the Baptist's head off. And when he hears of Jesus, he thinks, maybe that's John the Baptist come back to life. So there's one person that thinks he's John the Baptist. Elijah, why would they think Jesus might be Elijah? Because in the book of Malachi, Malachi says before Messiah comes, Elijah will be the forerunner. That's in Malachi 4.4. That was a theory. People thought that maybe he's Elijah. And then look at this next one. They thought he's going to be who? Where in the world would you get that? Well, there were a series of books. You've heard of Second Maccabees? Not a biblical book. And a couple other books that were popular during the days of Jesus. Not Bible books. But just like Left Behind's not a Bible book, is it? Not in the Bible. But people read it, and guess what they do when they read it? They believe it. And some of these extra-biblical books which were floating around were popular. And in one of the books, it says this. It says, when the kingdom comes, God's going to raise people from the dead. And he's going to send Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel to help the people when they're raised from the dead so they can find each other. The women, mothers can find their children and you all be a family again. That's why it says Jeremiah, look at that in verse 14, or one of the other prophets such as Isaiah. So that's the, those were the things that were floating around and we see that these are positive images of Jesus. So he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, the crowds are going to be for him, not against him. And is that what happens when he marches into Jerusalem? Yeah, they're throwing things down, saying, Hail, you know. So they're all excited about Jesus. Now look at verses 15 and 16. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The Son of of the living God. The word Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. So he says, Peter speaking for the crowd says, uh, the disciple says, you are the Messiah king, the one who's going to set up the kingdom. And then he says, you're the son of God. Which was a title that every Jewish earthly king took. Daniel was called the son of God. Solomon was called the son of God. When uh, the king was inaugurated. God declared him to be his son and uh, his earthly representative. So that's what son of God means in this particular passage. Uh, he's the son of the living God. Remember uh, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was inaugurated as king. And the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved what? Son. So this is a God attests to that. And uh, now Peter attests to that. Now he's called the son of what kind of God? Yeah, versus idols. Versus the gods of the Romans and the gods of the Greeks, which are not really alive and cannot convey life. So we see that this is Peter and the disciples' opinion of him. So Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. So what he does is he blesses, G uh, blesses Peter. Now that's important. Uh, this is a benediction upon what Peter is saying. He sort of agrees with what Peter is saying. 
Uh, notice he calls him uh, Simon Bar-Jonah. See that? Simon, son of Jonah. Or we would say, son of John. Peter says, you are son of God. Jesus says, you're the son of John. And you're blessed because of what you said. Notice he says that. Why are you blessed? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Here's the reason. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. So you didn't get this from uh, talking to other human beings. You didn't adopt their opinion that I'm a prophet only. Uh, you didn't get this from human deduction, from human reasoning. Uh, this came as a revelation from God. This came from a divine source, not a human source. That's why you are blessed. And so that's his declaration upon Peter. This is what I'm going to call declaration number one. You are blessed. Why are you blessed? Because of the revelation and your knowledge of that revelation. Now look at declaration number two. And I also say to you, not only are you blessed, I say to you that you are Peter. It's declaration number two. You are Peter. Now you all know from other studies that the name Peter comes from the Greek word Petros, which means what? Rock. You are rock. Now he was born Simon. That's his birth name. His nickname given to him by Jesus is Rocky. So he says, You are you are you're a rock, you are Peter, you're a rock. See? Now, up until this time we haven't said anything I don't think too controversial. But now things are going to change. Now you're going to have to trust me a little bit. Which I know is very difficult, but you're going to. And if you don't, just forgive me for all my stupidity and what I have to say. But uh, notice what he says next. Here's the next part. He says, he makes a promise. Makes two promises. So he's made two declarations. Declaration number one, you're blessed. Declaration number two, you're a rock. Now, promise number one. And on this rock, I will build my church. That's promise number one. Notice it's the future tense. Now before we define what he means by the church, we need to discover what that foundation is upon which the church is going to be built. Okay? And the typical explanation is that the foundation of the church is not going to be built on Peter. That's what the Catholics believe. We never hold to that. Not to be built on Peter. And the reason we say it's not going to be built on Peter is because in the Greek text there are two words for rock. Peter, Petros, and then that second word comes from the Greek word Petra. Peter, Petros, second word, Petra. So he says... You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church, and that sounds like something different. So we said, well, what's he going to build the church on? What's the rock upon which he's going to build the church? 
And some people say, well, he's going to build the church on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. That's theory number one. Theory number two, Jesus is going to build the church on himself. He's the foundation of the church. He's the rock. That's based on what we would call the two-word theory. Two different Greek words. Okay, now I'm going to tell you what I think. Okay? I'm not going to die for it, but I'm putting my reputation on the line. <laughs> In the Aramaic, remember this, Jesus was not speaking Greek when he said this. Matthew's Gospels written in Greek 50 years after these events took place. But when Jesus said this, he wasn't speaking Greek. He was speaking Aramaic. And there's only one word for rock in Aramaic, and that's the word Cephas. There's only one word in Aramaic for rock, and that is what? Cephas. So when Jesus actually said this in 30 AD, it read like this. And I say to you that you are Cephas. And on this Cephas, I will build my church. So if you heard Jesus say that and you were Peter, you would say he's building the church on Peter, wouldn't you? And that's who I think he's building the church on. I think he's building the church on Peter. So I'm going to say, yeah, the Catholics are right about that. They're wrong about apostolic succession. They're wrong about the papacy. They're wrong about the Pope. But I think they're right that Jesus intended to build his church on Peter. Even in the Greek text, you can see that. Even in the English text, you can see that. Look in the English text. Look what he says here. He says... I also say to you that you are Peter. Now watch. Notice how he doesn't say it. He doesn't say it like this. And I say to you that you are Peter. But on this rock I'll build my church. You see that? He doesn't say, you are Peter, but on this rock I'll build my church. Even in the English text. What does he say? You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Even the English text, it makes sense. So I'm going to say it's Peter. Okay, He's the foundation of the church. Now you say, Street, that's about as dumb as a thing I've ever heard you say. No, I've said many dumber things than that. Uh, I'm not alone in this. In fact, the latest Broadman-Holman commentary put out by the Southern Baptist Convention, written by Tom Schreiner, Professor of Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville takes the same position. This makes good sense to me. So I'm going to say he's going to build the church on Peter. Initially. And you're going to see how this works as we get through the passage. Okay, so stick with me and don't crucify me yet. Now, next controversial thing. Let's talk about what the church is. Let's talk about the identity of the church. So here's what he says to Peter. I will build my church. And he says that to the disciples as well who are listening. I think this must come, have come as a shock. Messiah is not supposed to be building a church. He's supposed to defeat Rome and set up the kingdom of God. He's supposed to build the kingdom of God. What's this talk about church? I 
must have been throwing them for a loop. This is a different agenda than they're expecting. What's he talking about building a church? Now, it doesn't shock us. Not in 2000 and whatever it is, 13. Because the church has been around for 2,000 years and we're used to it. It doesn't sound like a shocking statement. But for these guys, what were they expecting Jesus to do? Build the what? The kingdom, not the church. So I think this is uh, throwing them for a loop. Now, when Jesus says he's going to build the church, what's he talking about? How would the apostles interpret the word church? Because there's no such thing as, quote, church as we know it today. Well, there was a series of social organizations in the first century that were known as voluntary associations. <clears throat> and I think this is where Jesus gets his concept of church. There was a group of social organizations in the first century throughout the Roman Empire known as voluntary associations. Uh, these were four kinds. There were unions or guilds. They were, you know, people got together from, let's say, the tent makers guild, like Paul, and uh, they would have a meeting once a month. And this was a, one of the associations. There were religious associations, you know, to, dedicated to the different Roman gods. There were um, ethnic associations. Let's say Rome took over, defeated France, for example, and took them over and brought them under the empire. Well, guess what? The French people still wanted to hold on to some of their customs. They meet together once a month, have a meal, hold on to those customs. And yet funeral associations, they were the fourth kind. My grandfather used to belong to a group called the Red Men's Club. That was a voluntary association. Civitan's a voluntary association today. Kiwanis is a voluntary association today. We're familiar with voluntary associations. All kinds of them out there. And these funeral associations, you would go and uh, pay your dues. And if you died, they made sure you got a funeral and your family got food. You had a big affair over your death, made sure you got buried. And my grandfather belonged to the Red Men's Association. So when he had an insurance policy, when he died, he was buried based on that. So these were these voluntary associations. These voluntary associations had different purposes, but they all had one thing in common. They were supper clubs. Everyone was a supper club. Every month they met together for a full banquet, which included a meal that lasted about an hour and a half. Then they would lift the toast of mixed wine to Caesar. Had to, every meal was dedicated to Caesar. And the gods over that supper club, who were the patron <coughs> gods and the different people, and they honored these gods and they poured out a libation. And then the next hour and a half or two, they had entertainment, discussion, debates, uh, all kinds of things that they did. Played games, depending on what the purpose of that club was. Uh, they spent an hour and a half in all kinds of activities. And that was called the symposium. But everyone honored Caesar. Now, the reason I say that the church is patterned after these voluntary associations is because the words that were linked to them are the same words that are used for the church. These voluntary associations were known as ecclesias. The word that's translated church. Their members were Adelphoi, brothers. 
Their leaders were episcopos, bishops or overseers. Does this sound familiar to you? And their servants were called diakonos or deacons. And all the language of the church was first found in the voluntary associations. So I think to the ears of the apostles, when they hear Jesus say, I'm going to build my church, what they hear is, I'm going to build my voluntary association. It's going to be a messianic association. And like all voluntary associations, it's going to have something in common. It's going to be a supper club. And that's why the church, every time it met, guess what it did? It ate. And it had a meal and a half, about an hour and a half, and then it lifted up a toast in honor of not Caesar as Lord, but Jesus as Lord. And then the last half of the process, which was another hour and a half, they prayed, they sang, they taught, they ministered, they did all those kinds of things. So I think Jesus is saying, I'm building my voluntary association. I don't think you've ever heard that before. Right? Now in this book that's coming out in April, Fool's Day, which is a great day for it to come out, that I've written on the kingdom, I have about seven pages just devoted to this. So I've been studying this. It's a uh, it's going to be a very controversial book, and when it comes out, you probably won't have a Sunday school teacher anymore because I'll probably be fired from every source that has power over me. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so let's keep reading. So he says he's going to build his church, which I'm going to call his supper club. Notice it's mine. You see that one? Different than any of the other Roman supper clubs that always have to give honor to Caesar and the heroes of Rome and the Roman gods, this is all going to be done in Jesus' name. So supper clubs are very important. And then look what he says. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And the phrase gates of Hades is a Hebrew idiom that simply means death. Death will not prevail against the church. Now, when I see that, that tells me something. It tells me the church is an interim association. It's an interim organization. Because when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ are going to do what? Rise. Everybody's going to rise and guess what? The last enemy who will be conquered is what? Death. Is, there's not going to be any more death. You'll wipe away tears when the kingdom comes on the earth in its fullness. But this church is in existence when there's still death. Do you see that? And death will not prevail against the church any more than it prevailed against Jesus. When they threatened Jesus and they said, we're going to put you to death. And guess what? He said, put me to death. And they did. But what did he do? He rose from the dead. And all the powers that be will come against the church. And they have for 2,000 years. And they have threatened, unless you deny the faith, unless you turn from Christ, we're going to kill you. You'll be a martyr. And the people said, kill us. And the church marched on. Death could not conquer. Why did we say, martyr me? Because we know like Christ, God is going to raise us too from the dead when the ultimate kingdom comes. And so the church is triumphant in the sense that the church marches onward. So the church has this interim function. 
between the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ on his throne and his second coming, right in the middle, there's the church. The church representing Christ here on earth, bringing in members. So proclamation number one, I will build my church. Now look at promise number two. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. See that? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's the second I will. First I will, verse 18, I will build my church. Promise number one. Promise number two, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys are used to open and close doors. That's the purpose of the keys. Used to lock and unlock things. These are the keys to the kingdom. The church, and I believe initially Peter, are given the keys to the kingdom. Keys to the what? Kingdom. Listen, the church is given the keys to the kingdom. This tells me several things. The church is not the kingdom. You see that? It's given the keys to the kingdom. But the church and the kingdom are not the same. Second thing I learned is that the church serves the kingdom. The church serves the kingdom. It carries out Christ's kingdom agenda on earth, but it's not the kingdom itself. Okay? Uh... There are these keys to the kingdom. Jesus initially has the keys, and he passes them on to someone else. Which means he authorizes Peter and the church to use the kingdom to open the door to the kingdom or close the door to the kingdom. Now, here's why I think Peter is so important. Who is it that stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel for the first time? Peter. He's preaching to the Jews. He opens the doors of the kingdom to the Jews through the preaching of the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans come to Christ. It is Peter who comes to Samaria and lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. It is Peter who opens the door to the Samaritans in mixed breed. Then in chapter 10, Peter goes to the household of Cornelius, the centurion, a Gentile. And who is it that preaches the gospel to the first Gentile and opens the door to the Gentile? Peter. Peter is the first to open the door to the Jews, open the door to the mixed races, and open the door to the Gentiles. That's why the church is founded on Peter. He's not the only foundation of the church, but he's the first. He's the one, in a sense, that God gives a special place to. Peter has a special place, and there's just no way around around that. So these keys open and close doors. Now I want to show you something. If you just look at chapter 23 as we close out this study. And uh, look what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And we'll come to this later on when we get to this chapter again, but I'll just point you to one verse. Look at Matthew 23 and verse 13. Matthew 23, 13. Look what it says. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
phony balonies, hypocrites. Now look what, why he says that. Why does he call them hypocrites? Look at the next word. Because, for, you shut up. You close the door of the kingdom against men. For neither you go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now here we see the Pharisees were closing the door to the kingdom, the people. And what is Jesus doing? He's now replacing the Jewish leaders with his own leaders. The Pharisees will no longer be considered the leaders of the Jews. In Jesus' mind, he is replacing them with his own leaders, which includes Peter. Now look what happens when you go back to chapter 16, as we sort of summarize all this. <coughs> look at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now look at this next thing. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now notice where all this takes place. It takes place on earth. You see that? It takes place on earth. Peter will get up on the day of Pentecost, and he's the one who can open the door or close the door, and he preaches the gospel, and he says, if you repent, I will guarantee you something. <clears throat> you'll be forgiven of your sins, and you'll be given the gift of the Holy Spirit have eternal life. He guarantees that. He makes that guarantee and God honors that guarantee because Peter will be preaching the gospel and he's opening the door for those. But he says if you reject the gospel, guess what? You'll be locked out of the kingdom. For you it'll be judgment. This is legal terminology, binding and loosening. Uh, loosening refers to acquittal. The legal term means acquittal. It means that you'll be forgiven. Come to Christ and you're forgiven. You're, you're set free. You're loosed. You can enter the kingdom. But if you don't, you're bound. You'll be held responsible for your sins. You will not enter the kingdom. When I stand up and I preach the gospel, when I, especially in the old days when I was doing evangelistic crusades, I could guarantee the people 100% if they repented and believed in Christ, God would forgive their sins and give them eternal life. What I said, God's stand is true in heaven. The moment I said that. And the people could bank on it. If I said, if you reject this gospel and you reject Jesus, you'll be held responsible for your sins and you will not get into heaven. You'll not get into the kingdom. God said the same thing. God sealed it. We hold the keys of the kingdom. Today, they've been given to us. And look at verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Messiah. Wait a second. What's going on here? Why is he saying, don't go around spreading the rumor that I am the Messiah? I think it's because... Uh, the masses of people have the wrong idea what the Messiah is supposed to do. What do they think he's going to do? Overthrow Rome? Set up the kingdom? That's not his agenda. His agenda is he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. God's going to raise him from the dead. He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to sit at God's right hand from which he will rule. 
and he will establish a church that will represent him on earth in this interim, giving us the keys of the kingdom so that when we preach, we can open the doors of the kingdom to those who repent and believe and close the doors to those who do not. And Jesus doesn't want them to go around and say, he's the we don't need some facade. Because the crowd's going to be totally misunderstanding that concept. And when he doesn't perform what they want him to do, when he ends up dying instead of defeating Rome, they're going to be really disappointed. So he says, just keep your mouth shut. Until when? Until after he descends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit. At that point, go gangbusters. Preach the gospel to everybody. This is God's uh, plan for the church. This is our mission. This mission is committed to us. And because we live on this side of the cross, uh, our job is to spread this message to everybody. So, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, for me, uh, is really an important passage because it's, it's the pivot point in which this whole story moves. And if we don't understand this, uh, we too, like the first century Jews, will not really understand what Jesus' mission is. And so here we are, the church, right here in this room. Peter's no longer around. Guess who has the keys of the kingdom? Not the Pope. I think we have the keys of the kingdom. And so we share the gospel. And our pastors and the church does the work that it's supposed to do. And we preach the gospel of this kingdom. When we do that, then God's plan is fulfilled for each generation. Next week we'll pick up where Jesus now turns and heads for Jerusalem. We're going to see what Peter says about that. Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage. That's uh, so full, so rich. We, can, we can't even plumb the depths of a passage like this. We can only scratch the surface. It's new every time and richer every time we read it. Oh, Lord, help us to understand our mission as the church and what we're to do until the Lord returns. In his name we pray. Amen.